Wow, that got quiet in a hurry. Good evening, everyone. Normally on Sunday night, I've been trying to limit announcements, but there are a few that I really want to stress today because um, tomorrow, I think everybody knows what happens tomorrow, but we want to be praying for Alden Bible Camp. It's a great week of potential, and that potential will be realized as God's people pray, as we commit to him, those who are involved, the children who will be coming, and then going back into their families, and those families are back in their communities, and there's a whole lot of good that can be done. And if you'll notice in the bulletin, the green insert, there are just about 100 people who are going to be helping in Alden Bible Camp. It's, it's within one or two, I think, of 100. So be sure to be praying for them. Keep that by your hand during the week. And also, parents, next week is Move Up. So if you haven't read about that yet, be sure you do so that you can help to prepare your children for what's going on. Um, we announced this morning, but perhaps you weren't here or didn't hear that, Kay Miller, the mother of Alan and Craig Miller, and the grandmother of others that we love, went home to be with the Lord on Friday. So please be praying for the family. There will be a service for her at Vidian's Funeral Home in Broomall. This coming Saturday, June 27th, the service starts at 10 a.m. There will be visitation from 9 to 10. And uh, in lieu of flowers, gifts would be appreciated to the Alden Union Church Missionary Fund. And please also make note that once again, we have a summer schedule of Sunday morning worship services uh, coming up as July begins. So that's two weeks from tonight or from today. So uh, be sure to read that schedule in the bulletin. And something to look forward to in the fall, there's an insert in the bulletin that invites you to the Centennial Picnic on September 26, realizing that's a long ways away. But if you mark that now and save that date, that's going to be a, a very good time in the Lord. And then uh, one final announcement tonight, uh, probably everybody has heard now, but Sam Schlorf went home to be with the Lord. Um, no, not everybody did hear. Okay, he went home to be with the Lord around 3 a.m. today. For those of you that don't know Sam, Sam was a missionary for many, many years serving in France, ser serving with Arab World, uh, Arab World Ministries, and um, a very faithful man of God. So be praying for Frederica. John is with them, and um, Carol is on her way from Poland to join with them. We don't know anything about the service times as of yet. So join me in prayer tonight, and we'll commit our time to the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you that tonight we have the opportunity to gather together because we desire to honor you. We want to sing your praises. We want to hear from your word. We want to even be able to greet one another and to give and to do all those things that enter into corporate worship together. Thank you so much that we don't have to implore you to be here with us, that you're already here. Uh, you're with us and you're within those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight I pray that you'd help us as we see you in a light once again of the God who leads us the God who helps us through everything. May it prove to be not only a blessing, but a challenge to our Christian lives. And we thank you for all that you're going to accomplish. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with us? And as we sing uh, these songs, uh, go ahead, stand. Uh, remind us of God's faithfulness to us in times of challenge, in times of difficulty, in times of weakness, in times of uh, uh, sorrow and in times of need for uh, warfare. So sing them with conviction and with joy.
rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Our God, you reign forever. Our hope, our strong deliverer. You are the everlasting God. The everlasting God. on wings like eagles. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. We will wait upon the Lord. Our God, you reign forever. Our hope, our strong deliverance.
darkness fills the night, it cannot hide the light. Whom shall I fear? You crush the by my 
sit down. Would you greet some folks around you? Okay, you can uh, find your places. Find a hymnal there if you would. This is a, we're going to sing a song that I, I we, if we'd had more time this morning we probably would have put it in the second service. Um, all your Number 418, All Your Anxiety. How many of you know this? How many of you have sung this before? Uh, oh dear. I thought everybody knew this. Okay, well you can learn a new song tonight. <laughs> and uh, if that disturbs you, one little thing that I always remind myself and others that every song you know was new at one time to you. <laughs> We're not born with a cache of hymns already preloaded. Uh, we learned them all. So you can learn some more. I know it's a little harder, but we can do that. So would you stand? 418, we'll just charge through it. You follow me and pray I don't lead you astray. Is there a heart or bound by sorrow? Is there a life weighed down by care?
be seated. Good evening. Wow. Let's try that again. Good evening. That's better. Okay. I am Randy Haynes, and I'm privileged to serve on the uh, missions committee of the uh, Board of Elders, and uh, as such, I am privileged to get a lot of information from a lot of missionaries that uh, is forwarded to our committee, and it's exciting to know that God is working throughout the world. Uh, the missionary of the week is on the back of your bulletin. I'm not going to go through all of that, but I want us to concentrate tonight on praying for the mission team that we're sending out in just a couple of weeks to place a promise. And these young people are going to go and they're going to impact lives for eternity. And I pray that their lives will be impacted for eternity as well. So let's pray together. Father God, we thank you this evening for who you are. We thank you that you have commissioned these, your people, to reach the world for Christ. And we know that the results are not up to us, but faithfulness is. And so I just thank you, Father, for the many who have gone out from this place to serve you around the world. We think of the young people tonight who are going out uh, in just a couple of weeks to place a promise. I pray that the time that they spend there will be life-changing for them, that they will see that uh, they can meet needs and that by the power of the Spirit of God within them, they can reach out to others. And, Father, I pray that the people that they touch will recognize their need for Christ, their need for him to rule completely in their lives. But for our young people as well, Father, I pray that as they go and as they work and as they return, that they will be greatly motivated to reach the world around them for Jesus Christ. Father, we just uh, ask that as um, they are seeking funds, that they would be able to raise those. Father, I pray that as they're seeking prayer partners, that they would raise up as well, Father, and that uh, we will send them out uh, equipped in every way to do the job that you've called them to do. We also pray for their leaders, especially for Rich and Tammy and for the other adults that will be going with them. I pray that you'll give them uh, great patience, uh, great endurance. Father, we know that uh, dealing with a bunch of teenagers for that amount of time can be frustrating at times, but I pray that you will greatly encourage them, and Father, we know that you will bless them because of their efforts. Now, Father, as we come before you tonight, we know that uh, uh, you've given us all that we have. Uh, we read in the scriptures that everything that we have is a gift from you, and we should treat it as that, not as something that we didn't get as a gift. And so as we give back to you a portion of the gifts that you've given to us, I pray that you will take these funds, that you will bless them, that you will multiply them as they go out into the world to reach people for Jesus Christ. And we thank you for all that you've done for us, all that you continue to do for us, all that you will do for us in the future, especially for the blessed hope of our eternity in heaven that is sealed by our Savior's death and resurrection. And it's in his precious name we pray and we thank you. Amen.
Once again, let's join together for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can sing these songs to you that come out of the real world, that come out of a world of battle. We thank you that even as we think to what's going on in our world today, we sometimes think that we're really not part of that battle, but we are, and we thank you that you're the head of those angel armies. We're 
thankful that you're the one that we can stand up with. We stand up for the Lord Jesus. And thank you so much that even tonight, as we see your ever-present help in time of trouble, that it may minister to folks who are here right now who are in trouble of one kind or another, or for those that trouble comes. We pray that you would help us to remember the things that you teach us, to bring them back to our mind so that they can minister to us when those troubles come. So we thank you for what you have in store. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we're in 1 Samuel chapter 23. If you'll turn there with me, 1 Samuel 23. We're only going to look at six verses tonight. And let me read them. Then we'll take a look at them together. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inheritance excuse me, the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Question arises as we look at a passage like this and many others, and as we see our world today and we see Christian missionaries who are in great danger, we see Christians, even Christians in a church, in great danger that we just saw about and heard about on the news uh, those who heroically are forgiving, those who came in and shot up a church. And we understand that there is evil, there is hatred, there, is, there are unspeakable things that go on. But the question is this, what is a Christian to do when duty calls to danger? What is a Christian to do when duty calls to danger? How does a child of God react to doing what is right, even when it looks like it carries some kind of a risk? And the risk could come in many, many flavors. Sometimes that risk is actually physical. It is a risk of life and limb. Other times that risk shows itself in different ways. What if doing something God's way may cost you a promotion? And for some it has done that. What if it may cost you a job, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a loss of money, a loss of popularity, a loss of prestige, or again, even the threat of bodily harm or worse. Several of our missionaries have given up their comfort as well as their security. They're serving in some very dangerous hot spots in our world today. We can't even print them on the Internet. We can't let their names be known publicly because they would be in grave danger. They're already in danger. But in this case, there would be even more danger to them. Should I always play it safe? Or are there times when my Christian responsibilities must take first priority over my human preferences? 
And my human preferences very often say, I want to take it easy, I want to play it safe. I certainly don't want to get involved in something that may cost me and may cost me dearly. David was caught in a tug-of-war kind of dilemma here before us right now. But his responses turned out to be very good. He was going to get a front-row seat to see that God is an ever-present help in trouble. Will you turn with me, please, to Psalm chapter 46. Psalm chapter 46, verse 1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help, it says in the ESV, a very present help in trouble. I like an ever-present help, that there's no time when God is not present with us. But let's look at the first several verses of Psalm 46 and put that verse in its context. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore. And there's that word again, therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. And as we go through there, we see other indications that we don't have to be afraid. This is almost a continuation of this morning's message, if if you were here this morning. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be afraid because we have a refuge and a strength and we have that ever-present help in trouble. Down to verse 7, we sang about Lord Sabaoth earlier, the, the angel armies, the one who's the leader of the angel armies. That's this expression, the Lord of hosts is with us, the, the one who will never, ever know defeat. And as we keep looking here, we see in verse 10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts, that's Lord Sabaoth again, is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And so we're able to see right here before us, the whole world can be caving in. That's what's described in these first three verses. Everything is falling apart. This is a colossal disaster. And so what for the believer in the Lord, the one who follows him and trusts him? It really doesn't matter. He's the ever-present help in trouble. So we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be anxious in any way. Over the next few Sunday nights, we're going to see how God showed himself to David in five different ways as these events unfolded. Tonight we're looking at the first way, and that would be the God who leads. We're looking at the first six verses. And the outline and the verses aren't all that important, but just this knowledge of God is important because then we're going to look at the God who knows. He knows everything that is going on. We're then going to see the God who protects. God who protects, and that's in verses 13 and 14. Then the God who strengthens and helps in verses 15 through 18. And then the God who rescues in verses 19 through 29. So tonight, the God who leads, and we're going to start out looking at verse 1, duty or self-preservation. This is a choice that David had. Is he going to do what is right? Or is he going to do what is a whole lot safer for himself? And now for those who were there with him, numbering 600 men before we get through this chapter, we're going to see it was 400 men before. Is it going to be okay to risk his life and their lives to do what he believes to be the right thing or not? So David here needs God's guidance and God's direction. 
this tug of war that he's having is between duty and self-preservation. He also had to deal with some peer pressure because his men were not initially seeing it the same way that he wanted to go. The problem, according to verse 1, concerned the Philistines. They were fighting against a place called Keilah. Keilah was a city in Judah, three miles south of Adullam. Now, you may remember at the beginning of the last chapter, the beginning of chapter 22, David departed, it says, escaped to the cave at Adullam. And that's when his brothers and his father's house, all those members came to be there with him. And all the people in distress, I, I called them Robin Hood's merry men, the same kind of individuals who were in debt, who were running from the law perhaps, who were being persecuted by the king, they all joined him. That was there at Adullam. And that was 15 miles southwest of Bethlehem, 13 miles east of the Philistine stronghold at Gath. And uh, perhaps a map would be helpful at this particular point. And so if you can see here uh, where we are right now, Keilah is the place that is going to be of interest to us tonight. This is where the Philistines were attacking. They were coming to the threshing floor. They were pillaging and looting. Uh, we can see Adullam is very close to that place where David had been. Then he went to the forest of Hereth. Now he hears that there's trouble over here. You can see where Jerusalem is. Gath is going to be right in this area right here, although it's not listed, but it's somewhere in this area. That's where Goliath was. That's where David had gone and made a fool of himself pretending that he was insane. So you get a, at least a flavor for where we are in the, in the map that is up there right now. Here's a question, though. But how was the Philistine attack of a city in Judah David's problem? Because at this point, David was a nobody. David was on the run from King Saul. He had no official title. He had nothing that he had at stake, except that he thought maybe there was something good to be done at this particular place. David was not a representative of the king, but these were David's people. We are talking about Judah. That was his tribe. They were no match for the Philistines. David felt a sense of loyalty and duty. What was happening? Philistines are going to let the Israelites cultivate the ground. They're going to plant the seed. They're going to harvest the grain or the corn. And then the Philistines are going to come after all the work is done. They're going to take the fruit of that for themselves. Doesn't seem quite fair. It's like the uh, bad guys on TV who let the good guys follow the map, you know and dig up the treasure, they do all the work, and then the bad guys come in and they take everything from them. A, a very similar situation. So David felt some kind of an obligation to remedy this wrong. But the question is, was this a God-given obligation or not? My father used to teach us that every opportunity is not a responsibility. Do you understand what that's saying? Every opportunity is not a responsibility. If it were, you could go broke. When you look at the mail, all the charitable organizations asking for money, you could go broke just mailing a response without any money to them in postage. You could go broke doing that. Every opportunity is not a responsibility. We have to find out what it is that God would have us to do. We can't respond to every opportunity that comes along, even in the church. We all don't have the same gifts. All of us can't do the same thing. Uh, all of us can't be doing everything. So every opportunity is not a responsibility. How is David going to find out what is the right thing to do here? Certainly there's a tug of war that is going on with him. 
On the negative side of David getting involved was the fact that there was great danger in fighting the Philistines. They were very warlike. They were well-trained. They were well-armed. Their home base was very close to where they were here. They would be well-supplied. It would not be necessarily the best situation for 600 men to get involved with against a, a whole country. There was also great danger, though, from Saul, who was still dogging every step. We'll see this, when, Lord willing, when we get into the rest of this chapter, that every time Saul hears where David is, Saul is coming after him, and he certainly would hear that David was nearby if Keilah was delivered from David. He would immediately know, and he would immediately come. So David didn't know what to do. Was it his duty to fight against a formidable enemy at the risk of himself? So what is he to do? Well, there's a great principle for us, and we saw it this morning as well. When we're inclined to worry, what are we supposed to do? The antidote to worry is to pray. The antidote to doubt is to pray. The antidote to a lot of things is to pray. So when in doubt, ask God. And if you look at verses 2 and 3, that's exactly what David is going to do. Therefore, I love those therefores. They show up just when we need to stop and think a little bit. David inquired of the Lord. Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And he got a direct answer. Should I go and attack the Philistines? When in doubt, ask God. He would have no doubt anymore when he would ask God, at least in this particular case, he's going to go back to him, but he's going to know the answer. Before the days of modern navigational aids, a traveler made the Atlantic crossing in a boat equipped with two compasses. Oddly enough, they always had two compasses at that particular time. One was fixed to the deck where the man at the wheel could see it. But the other compass was fastened up on one of the masts, and often a sailor would be seen climbing up to inspect it. Why would you go all the way up to inspect one on the mast when you had one right there on the deck? And so a passenger asked the captain, why do you have the two compasses? And he said, this is an iron vessel. And the compass on the deck is often affected by its surroundings. Such is not the case with the compass at the masthead. That one is above the influence. We steer by the compass above. Do we also do that as Christians? We certainly should. We should steer by the compass that is above not by the one in the surroundings that are around us. Because if we went by that compass, we would be going in all kinds of wrong directions. And do you know what? We see that over and over and over again. We see it in our world today. We see it in our society today. I'm not going to go into some of the headlines that I've been reading, some of the things that I've been hearing about, but some of the issues that we've been wrestling with as a congregation and taking a firm stand on, some of those issues are coming to light before our very eyes because the world is being steered by the wrong compass. It's being steered by that that is affected by the surroundings, and what we need to do is to get above that. That's why David went to the Lord, because around him the surroundings weren't going to be too comforting to what he wanted to know. And so the Lord is going to answer him, Go, attack the Philistines, and save Keilah. How did the Lord tell him? Well, we don't really know. We just know that he did. We can make some assumptions. Some think it was through the prophet Gad. Remember back in chapter 22, Gad had joined them. They had joined David and his, I'll call him his merry men. 
Others believe that the reference to the ephod in verse 6 indicates that was the method that God used. Because if you look at verse 6, Abiathar is there. He's a priest. And it says, when he had fled to David, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. An ephod was a means by which they sought to know what God wanted them to do at that particular time. That was something that came in very handy, and the priest was involved with that. So it could have been that. Commentators are kind of divided in whether the arrival of the ephod was before or after the battle. In fact, an ESV study Bible study note suggests it came after. But the ESV rendering of the word suggests it came before. So you can't always trust the study Bible. You don't always, it's not always going to settle every particular argument. But I believe that Abiathar, who appeared in chapter 22, verses 20 through 23, I believe that Abiathar was already there because David said, stay with me, even back then. And I don't believe there was any reason for Abiathar not to stay with him. So if I had to guess, I would say the Lord spoke through the ephod that Abiathar had and gave a direct word to David. We don't know for sure how God communicated with David, but we know that he did. It does tell us that. It doesn't tell us exactly how. And we know that a short time later, the ephod was definitely used by David to inquire of the Lord what he should do later on, even in this chapter. So I believe that Abiathar was God's man in the right place at the right time to help another individual, David, to know what it was that God wanted him to do. One of the commentaries says this, How ironic that in killing priests who had not conspired with David, Saul placed in David's hand a vital spiritual resource that permitted David to escape him again and again. God is still able to take plans laid against us and turn them to our advantage. So that ephod, if it was there, contained the Urim and Thummim. To how many are those new words? Have you ever heard them before? Urim and Thummim. Okay, for a number of you have never heard them before. The first mention of this is in Exodus chapter 28, verse 30. So let's turn there for just a moment. Exodus chapter 28, verse 30. always good to turn to the first time something may be mentioned. But in Exodus chapter 28 and verse 30, it says, And in the breast piece of judgment you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. So you can see how early it was established. But if you turn to Numbers chapter 27... Numbers chapter 27. This is now some time later. This was something that had been used by the priests in order to find out what God's will is for the people, particularly direction often, or when decisions had to be made. Numbers 27 and verse 18. So the Lord said to Moses, it's time now to get a successor for Moses, take Joshua the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, that all the congregation of the people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. 
And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation. And he laid his hands on him and commissioned him as the Lord directed through Moses. So we have a a situation that is described for us as an important decision. And so they're going to consult. And it referred to something that I think is explained very well in an NIV study note. The Hebrew for the Urim and the Thummim probably means the curses and the perfections. The Hebrew word Urim begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, and Thummim begins with the last letter, Tau. They were sacred lots and were often used in times of crisis to determine the will of God. It has been suggested that if Urim, that is curses, dominated when the lots were cast, the answer was no. But if Thummim, perfections dominated, it was yes. In any event, their every decision was from the Lord. Now, how they worked has been the subject of a whole lot of conjecture. Some say they were stones that would change colors, bright or dark, to indicate what it was that God wanted them to do. Others say an audible voice or a written message came out of them from a stone or a plate of gold. Some say they were lots, three choices on three stones. If one was chosen, it would be yes. If another was chosen, it would be no. And if another was chosen, it would be blank. And there would be no decision that would be coming at that particular time. So we do know that Urim and Thummim are not around today. So how does God speak to us? He may have spoken to them at that time through that or through the prophet directly, but how does he speak to us? He speaks to us through his word. His word as illuminated by his Holy Spirit, the one who turns the lights of our understanding on the one who guides us. Speaks to us and guides us through a combination of his peace, his providence in answer to prayer and in response to our obedience, all under the authority of his word. That's where it begins and ends. It's like this morning when we were talking about the need for prayer. We talk to God and he talks to us in his ways. Some of you know your history very well. Let's go back to the summer of 1776. The delegates had come from 13 colonies to make a momentous decision. The conditions were troubled in the New World at that time and something had to be done. A decision had to be made one way or another. But apparently there was no good choice because things were deadlocked. And the delegates to that particular convention didn't really know what to do. The faces were gloomy in the old state house in Philadelphia. One suggestion after another was offered and then discarded. Then finally, in the middle of the dissension, in the middle of the debate as to whether a new nation should be created or not, it came what I consider to be the finest moment for a man who had some not-so-fine moments, Benjamin Franklin. At that time, the oldest and most renowned of the delegates, they wanted to know what was his opinion, what should be done. And he hesitated. Then he got up to his feet and he delivered a very brief message centered around Psalm 127. It became the spiritual foundation stone of America and resulted in the Declaration of Independence. A few today maybe have heard those words, but probably not too many. I'm going to guess Chuck Young knows these words very well. You can check with him afterwards. 
Here's what he said. I have lived a long time. Nobody would argue to that point. I have lived a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his will, is it possible for an empire to rise without his notice? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. He then suggested that they have a season of prayer. His advice was followed. Chaos soon resolved into unity, and the United States of America was born July 4th, 1776. Prayer is a very, very powerful commodity. Well, you know, it's a good thing that David asked God what to do and not his men. Because if you look at verse 3, his own men were afraid already, it says. Here's what he said to them, or what they said to him. Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. We're already afraid. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? They didn't need anything extra at that point. They didn't need the Philistines to be brought into this equation. Why add trouble? They were looking at the problems, the circumstances, rather than looking at God. They didn't want to be the cream in the middle of an Oreo when the two sides of the cookie came together when behind them here came Saul and his army and in front of them were the Philistines and their army. They didn't want to be caught in that. They didn't want to be fighting a battle on two fronts. What other misgivings might they have had? They might have said to David, you know what, it's not our fight. You don't owe Saul anything. Or they could have said, you know what, God has given you a raw deal. Look at you. Look at where you were, and now look at where you are, and look at your future. It doesn't look very bright right now. Why bother to live for him? Or, David, don't forget, you're not the king. Or, what would the people of Keilah do for you if they had a chance to turn on you? How do you know that they would be faithful to you? And in the last three verses, and in those last three verses, we come with reassurance. So David inquired of the Lord again, That's in verse 4, a second time. Was that wrong? Is that wrong for him to ask God a second time? Did that show doubting? Did that show that he was afraid and he shouldn't have done that? No, there was nothing wrong with him doing that or God would have told him. God honored that second request. Uh, Not everyone gets away with something like that, though. This reminded me a little bit of Balaam. I wanted to go back to Balaam and see what's happening with him. And that's in Numbers chapter 22. If you remember, Balak, the king of the Moabites, wanted to be sure that something happened to stop this onslaught of the Israelites. He was very frightened by them. He saw God blessing them. So he came to Balaam and he said to Balaam, I want you to curse this people. And he sent some of his emissaries. And, and he, uh, he also said to Balaam that uh, basically they can help him out if he helps them out. Balaam inquired of the Lord, and God said, No, I don't want you to curse my people. So Balak, the king of the Moabites, sent another entourage, and this time they sweetened the pot a little bit, and they talked about adding some more money to him. And this time, what's going on is that Balaam says, No, I can't. can only tell you what God told me. But you know what? I'll check it out again, just to be sure tonight. 
And you remember the story that God told him, you go ahead, and there was a whole lot of trouble that happened. The motive behind what Balaam did was profit, and he later gave bad advice and later was killed in battle. And uh, his name, even in the New Testament, is given to us as someone uh, in a very bad light. So what we have here is not something wrong. David's attitude was sincere. His attitude was not like Balaam. God is the one who looks at the heart. If it's, if it's our desire to know his will and not to question his will or his power to do something, it's not wrong to keep asking. It's not wrong to want to be sure. It's not wrong to seek confirmation. God's answer the second time reveals even more information than the first answer. God's desire to corroborate his leading is, excuse me, David's desire to corroborate God's leading is something that is rewarded. First answer was a command. If you look at verse 2 once again, Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But in verse 4, it's more than just a command. Now we're going to see a promise that's added to it. David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. He told him to go and save him. That implies that there was going to be an outcome, but here it's very, very clear. I will give the Philistines into your hand. So God does not discourage us from communing with him. He communes right back. And in this case, he even gave him more information. Well, here's David. Now that I know, what do I do next? David had seen a need. He felt a responsibility. He inquired of the Lord. He was given an answer. He saw his men fearful of taking a dangerous assignment. He inquired of the Lord again. He received a second go-ahead attached to a promise this time. Now he had a decision to make. According to verse 5, that decision that he made was to obey the voice of the Lord. When God said to go, he went. A question that came to me was, as I was looking at Ephesians 3.20, how does that ring true in this situation? Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. The question was, shall I go and attack the Philistines? God said yes twice. David obeyed. His men obeyed with him. All they were promised was that they would win. But do you see what happened? See what happened in verse 5? They also carried off livestock. You know what that means to 600 men who are on the run, who are fleeing, who don't have a chance to stop and plant things and harvest things? That meant steak and all beef hot dogs for a lot of men, 600 of them. They also carried off livestock. They inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines. They saved their countrymen. All of that because David decided that he didn't know what to do. He would inquire of God, and God gave him the answer, and he obeyed. Now let's go back to where we started. What is a Christian to do when duty calls to danger? How does a Christian react to doing what is right even when it looks like it carries a risk, or it's inconvenient, or it requires a sacrifice, or it's hard? What if doing a thing God's way may cost me that promotion, that job, that boyfriend, girlfriend, loss of money, loss of prestige, even the threat of bodily harm or worse? I want to share with you something that I received via email this week. 
It actually came from Judy Ettinger. And it was about rest street ministry update. This is the first street ministry that was taking place, and the report had come from the previous night. And it came from a lady by the name of Erica that some of you may at least know of. This is their first time on the street in Elkton. We decided to go right to a main street in Elkton. And what are they doing? They're going to minister. They're open to what God wants them to do, but they're in the middle of an area of prostitution and drug abuse. Upon arriving, we prayed and divided into two teams. Brian, Cindy, and Susie were a team, and Ron, Georgia, and myself were the other. We set out, and the streets were really quiet. We saw a group of people standing on the sidewalk talking. If I were there and I saw a group of people standing on the sidewalk talking, my first impulse would be to go to the other side of the street and avoid people because there are probably not a whole lot of people hanging around there that are the kind of people you're going to feel safe with. But these people were very friendly. There was a mom named C, can't give the names, with her five-month-old baby, R. She said we could pray for the baby, so we prayed blessing over her. Can you imagine that? Here they are in this kind of a neighborhood, and the first thing they do, they meet people, they talk. They probably ooh and ah about the baby, and then they ask if they can pray for the baby, and they do. She had a husband. We can't name him either, and later a five-year-old son. She looked clean, but one of the other ladies told us that although she is clean now, she was on methadone while pregnant. Thankfully, R looks perfectly healthy. That's the baby. G was super friendly. She and Georgia really hit it off. She has lung cancer and is currently taking chemo. She looks great, but the doctor said she should have died a month ago. She is still smoking. She knows all the prostitutes in the area, knows all the ones from the bust. I don't know what the bust is. It may have been an arrest or something. says none of them have pimps, but all are addicted. She and Georgia hugged and cried together. She said she could really use an air conditioner window unit. Chemo is hard and her apartment doesn't get any breeze. We said we would look, but there were no promises. She thanked us. I got her phone number. We also met A. He was a little hard to understand and he was quiet. He sat on the stoop while we spoke to the girls, chimed in when we talked about prison. He has done nine years in two different prisons. Incidentally, um, Ron is still on the lookout for an air conditioning unit if they can find one for free or next to nothing, then they can drop that off to her. Susie said she was glad we didn't see a lot of people because she would have been trying to see everyone instead of focusing on those that we had in front of us. Thank you all for covering us in prayer last night. I felt safe and comfortable, no doubt because of your prayers of covering in the presence of the Spirit. We will let you know when we schedule our next night out. In the meantime, please pray for physical and spiritual protection for us. Pray for the women we did make contact with and that we can build relationships with them and make new relationships as more women learn about us and our purpose for being there to share Jesus' love and hope with them. These individuals didn't understand what it means to play it safe, to not take any risks, to be comfortable. Those are people who are worthy of our prayers and deserving of our prayers. Should I play it safe? Or are there times when my Christian responsibilities must take priority over my human preferences? We need to be praying for our missionaries. We need to be praying for Joe McEnany. We need to be praying for Tony Rizzo. We need to be praying for Mickey Donahue. 
We need to be praying for those who aren't afraid to go into some areas and minister to people who need it. All too many Christians are playing it safe. David was in a situation where he decided, I want to ask what God wants me to do. Whether it's safe or not, I'm going to do it. The words of a theologian from an earlier period have always stuck with me. He said, be sure you're right, then go ahead. That was David Crockett. Maybe I'm stretching it to say he's a theologian, but those words have stuck with me. Be sure you're right, then go ahead. How can we be sure? We've got to ask God and keep in communication with him. And then obey, just like David did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that as we see and we sing about warfare so often, we're very, very content to read the newspaper instead. Please help us when you lead us into those places that require perhaps a cost and certainly a risk. We want to be sure that's where you want us to be, but if we are, we want to be there in obedience to you. And we certainly want to be praying for others who are there, some who have gone on before ahead of us. We thank you for them. We thank you for David. We thank you for yet another example that you want us to have from the Old Testament to be an encouragement to us in living our Christian lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 482, if you'll find that and stand with me. Ask a lot of questions, and I think the answers are clear. And maybe we can align ourselves with the answers as we sing it. Let's stand together. 482. Uh, 482, across the page. After I pronounce a benediction, I'd like to encourage you to sit down and read those words one more time. There are some probing questions with a great conclusion. So just spend the minute and do that and make sure they didn't pass.
Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the challenge that is there. And may each one of us ask and answer those questions the way you want us to. And having decided what it is that you want, may we do that. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.